Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of Beef and Lamb New Zealand Seen and Heard. This is part two of our uh, interview with Ginny Dodansky, who's the senior vet at, at Totally Vets. If you haven't already, go back and have a look. We've got the uh, part one was on uh, sheep and talking about some key autumn animal health issues for sheep. And this week we're talking about key autumn animal health issues for beef cattle, um, right from calves through to, to beef cows. And Ginny, uh, we were going to talk about this again, but I thought... Um, start set the scene you're at the moment it's um april late april you're you've been doing a lot of pregnancy testing of cows lately um and i know last week you spoke about how you don't like to average and extrapolate but um you said there's some interesting issues coming out of that in terms of managing beef cows for body condition score and feeding yeah and i guess you know we'll get into that in a bit more detail later but um you know, people always say, oh, you know, how are the cows looking and what are the pregnancy rates like? Yeah. And, um, you know, certainly that question of how are the cows looking um, in pretty much every mob I'm scanning, there's some really good ones um, and there's some pretty poor ones. Um, and most of the mobs I'm scanning are probably a mob of two halves. Um, uh-huh. And while, you know, later on we'll probably get into talking about preferentially feeding cows and, and managing them separately, um you know, the other function of a cow herd is, is to be a working mob on some of these hill country farms. And as soon as you start splitting them up, you know, you dilute their eating power a bit. Um, yep. So that is, I do acknowledge that that's a, a tension um, in our systems. Um, but yeah, we'll probably go in more detail yep. later, but um, certainly holding off any further condition loss on those cows that are already light will absolutely pay dividends in calf survival later. So the the beef cow nationally, the traditional beef cow nationally has tended, the herd's been in decline and, and um, certainly in my area, the central South Island, there's, there's nowhere near the numbers there used to be. There's some big, big beef cow operations, obviously the, the further back and the higher you get, but what's beef cow numbers, operations like in your part of the world? Is it still a big part of your business and farmer's business? Yes, absolutely. On our hill country, um, I would say the majority of farms still have a beef cow herd um, and, yeah, they're there to do a job in terms of uh, pasture quality. Um, We're on quite steep hill country on the Taumaranui side of the practice and, um, you know, things like Frisian bulls and and big steers and things are more challenging to get good performance out of um, and, and just keep up on their feet. Um, the Angus cow seems to be the, the breed of choice in our area, and, and they yeah. certainly cope well. Um, your owner-operator places are probably around about the 100 to 200 cow mark, and then our bigger stations um, sort of up to almost 1,000 cows. Yeah, nice some big numbers in this day and age. And I think you know, one of the things we've seen around the country too is uh, people realising that it's not just the value of the cow, but it's what she eats. And, and there's a podcast we've got with Steve Morris where he talks about the fact that um, – Apples and oranges sometimes when you look at your beef cow herd, what she's eating versus what you usually do eat through the year are completely different feeds. Um, have you seen, sort of getting a wee bit off topic, but have you seen uh, people swinging back into the beef cows, A, as they realise their value, and B, I guess, you know, the beef market, the beef schedule's been pretty good for a year or two now? Yeah, I mean, in, in our district, certainly I... Um, some, some of the cow numbers have gone up, but, um, you know, in our area, they've never really gone away, which um, yeah. for me was one of the attractions of going there <laughs> because they're not dairy cows. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes, well, but, um, dairy farmers do pay some levies to beef in New Zealand, and we think they're great. But um, yeah, oh, and it's nice. No, no, it's good. It's nice to see um, traditional beef cows. Um, a lot of our beef workers with with dairy crosses and things, which are great. But it's nice to see that there's still a place for the for the traditional cows. But anyway, on with the show. Um, one of the and it's a nice segue in a way because one of the first things you talk about in your latest article, which you'll see linked to in the blurb of this podcast, is um, cow reared calves. So wieners. Uh, R1s, calves, call them what you will. There's, the names vary all around the country. Um, obviously, like anything, most animal health issues start with um, feeding, the quantity and the quality. But um, we've had some challenges with that with the drought and for other parts of the country with um, drought and processing issues, obviously. But parasitism is a sort of a hardy annual with um, calves. Jenny, what's the key issues with calves? And I think you're going to talk slightly differently about artificially reared calves shortly. So calves that are weaned off cows, what's the key issues? Yeah, and, you know, I'm certainly seeing some smaller weaners around than normal this year, which was why I made the comment, um, you know, on a lot of um, traditional sheep and beef properties, the weaners might get uh, a drench, say, at weaning, and then maybe one or two more drenches after that through the winter. Um, but, you know, some of these smaller weaners that are coming off cows this year may need slightly more intensive parasite management than mm-hmm. they might in a normal year. Um, and it's that's just a size and immunity thing. Um, but absolutely the feed uh, being the critical thing. Um, but the, the main rule for uh, any cattle under about sort of 15 months of age is that whatever you're drenching them with really absolutely needs to have a levamazole component in the drench. I think most farmers are well aware of that now. Um, Cooperia in New Zealand is almost universally resistant to mm-hmm. uh, just the plain mecton drenches. Um, so, yeah, just don't stop that levamazole too early, especially in those smaller weaners. And we talked about last week, you know, the, the, the wormwise guidance, the general rule of thumb is that regular 28-day drenching period for lambs, etc. What's the, the rule of thumb or, or is there any guide like that for, for the calves? Well, Jeepers, you know, for those older weaners that are, are coming off mum at sort of six months or so um, of age, you know, they you don't need that strict rule quite mm-hmm. so much. Um, but, yeah, as I, as I alluded to, the smaller they are, the more likely you are to need to stick to that kind of interval. Um, yep. The other thing on most mixed um, enterprises is that the amount of worm contamination from cattle worms isn't the same kind of quantum as it is with the sheep. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and beef weaners, um, you know, weaned in mid to late autumn generally are under lower worm challenge than say a lamb weaned in December so um, yeah the, the need to strictly stick to say 28 day intervals is is not really there with beef weaners and also you know some of those products do have a bit, a bit of persistency especially against ostatagia so I think in practical terms a, a lot of farmers would find that they're not needing to stick to strict monthly intervals yeah, that's a bit of a farm by farm thing, that one. Yeah, no, no, fair enough. Um, but you talked there about, you know, um, the issue with cuperia resistance to the mectins. Um, is there any advantage going to a, a triple combination over the double? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and the same principles apply as do to sheep in terms of um, the more actives in a combination um there's a quantum, you know, less of worms that will survive. Mm-hmm. Um, therefore, you know, triple combination is the gold standard. Uh, those are all only oral products. So I do understand that, you know, some people with um, 
their own age or capability or their facilities or the temperament of their cattle um, that, you know, oral drenching isn't always that practical, but it is the gold standard the longer that we can stick with it with those young cattle for sure. Yep. Okay. And then um, getting on to the artificially reared ones, bucket reared, call them what you will, um, are the rules or the, the guidelines or the advice any different for them? Um, probably not by this time of the season, to be honest, yep. um, as long as they're well grown. But, you know, there are <laughs> some ratty little ones around. Um, <laughs> and again, same thing, you know, they're going to have less immunity because they're less well grown. Um, you know, and if you're buying those sort of animals, they may have already sort of some parasite damage, so need a bit more mollycoddling. But, you know, those sort of animals feed is absolutely number one. Um, and I do make the point in the article that, you know, poor performance in these R1s, so much of the time is just a feed allocation thing from this time of the year onwards, whether they, you know, might be going onto a crop or getting break fed or um, getting baleage and something else when you do the maths. So often it's just that it's an under allocation of feed rather than anything else um, exciting like a trace element deficiency yeah. or a resistant worm or anything like that. And vets get called in a lot for that sort of thing. And, you know, we're trained bug hunters, so we like to take blood samples and poo samples and things. But, um, yeah, quite often when you do the maths on this stuff, it is a feeding issue. So make sure you tick that box first. Yeah. And with the, the artificially reared calves being either small or under a bit more of a challenge or, or all those various issues. Um, there's a stronger case there for, for the benefits of a triple drench or is it, um, again, a case-by-case -case basis? Uh, yeah, it's definitely if the longer that you can stick with a triple drench, the better. Um, yep. And also the other thing about those type of animals is depending on where they have come from, there's a much greater risk that they might have some genuinely resistant worms in them. Um, we are seeing um, double combination, i.e. white and clear, like your, um, I won't name products, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, that typical drench that might be given over the summer to those yeah. artificially reared animals, we, we are seeing cases of resistance to that. So if you're buying in those type of cattle, um, hitting the worms in them with something fairly hard is, is a good idea just in case there are some resistant ones there. Um, and we could talk about quarantine drenching then, but I don't, yeah, that, that's another topic again. And <laughs> a, triple, a triple combination on its own is probably not the best advice there either. But, yeah, we'll leave that one for now. Okay. All right. Get good advice is normally the, the best rule of thumb. Um, one of the things we talked about, and I guess this ties in with where you were, or seeking another nice um, lead in from what you were talking there with resistance and those risks and things. We talked with the lambs last week about drench checks and just that first making sure the drench work. If it didn't, then you go into an investigation why it didn't. Uh, drench checks, things like that, um, valid, feasible with the calves as well? Uh, equally applicable in calves at this time of the year. It's yep. just being aware that as the months roll on, uh, faecal egg counts in cattle tend to become less reliable because um, the older they get, the more likely it is that they've got parasites inside them, but it's not being reflected in egg counts. Okay. Um, but up till probably mid-winter, that's still a worthwhile exercise, absolutely. And we don't do enough of that in our beef systems. It's something we really need to ramp up. Now, as I say, you've written the articles, a lot more detail in the article that we're going to cover here. It's linked in the, in the blurb. Um, you mentioned before as well, on as we were discussing, that you know um, trace element deficiencies and things like that can happen, but aren't 
generally the main issue. But one you did note was, you know, the possibility of facial eczema um, challenge or a late facial eczema challenge. I just wanted to pick up on that because um, I don't tend, I don't come from an area that's got facial eczema or it hasn't yet anyway. Climate You're change lucky. might. You're climate very change. Lucky. Yeah, I've seen the maps where they how when they think we're going to get it. So um, yeah, it may be on our way. In beef cattle, um, a lot of work done in sheep. Is it something people tend to be unaware of or overlook in, in cattle? I mean, how, how oh, often do you not, see? Not in, not in the, the genuine eczema areas, not at yeah. all. And, um, you know, it's it's been well demonstrated in, in intensive beef systems that, um, you know, the, the zinc boluses are mm-hmm. the most reliable when it comes to protection. Um, you know, if you haven't got them on a crop or something more clever like that. Um, so yeah, I think it is well recognised. It's just particularly with our Angus type cattle, um, probably goes a little bit underappreciated because they don't tend to break out with it. Um, mm-hmm. I saw two beautiful, well they were at some stage beautiful big Angus bulls um, last year that had gone out, worked with the cows, and then just would not put weight back on. Um, and those two guys had come from north of where I am, um, but had had obviously two seasons of eczema damage to their livers, and then just mm-hmm. you know that next autumn they just that was it. They weren't going to put weight back on and that slaughter, their livers were really quite knackered. Um, but you would never have seen any clinical signs in those animals. So that's very common in beef cattle. It, it, unless you're farming white face, you might mm-hmm. not see it. Okay, so just because of the black colour and you don't get the photosensitivity showing through. Yeah, that's right. But there can be significant liver damage. Yeah. Okay. No, that's interesting. I hadn't picked up on that. All right. Um Moving on, R2s was the next one, um, and we're talking dry R2s here. We're going to get to you know pregnant heifers in, in, in a moment, but um, anything or what are, what's the the things to look out for? I guess yeah, with your R2 cattle, whether they're heifers or steers, um, just the ones that aren't in calf. Yeah, for them, um, it's you know they've probably had a bit of a hard time this year. Um, yep. And they may be light. Um, you know, we don't want winter feed's expensive, right? Um, uh-huh. So we don't want them. We don't want to be wasting winter feed on them. That's that's going astray because they're parasitized or because they're very very short of copper or something like that. And saying that, you know, trace element deficiencies in that class of stock are really quite rare, and they can run along with reasonably low levels of trace elements because they're not doing a whole lot of um, sort of organ and skeletal growth, which is where the demand for trace elements comes. Mm-hmm. Um, so making sure that those guys don't take a worm burden or a fluke burden into winter. Um, but I think most people taking our twos through the winter would do some sort of routine treatment and sort of uh, at the end of the autumn there for, for that. So hopefully that's well covered. And clear them out. But the, the key thing I picked up in the article is um, we talked about cuperia with the calves, but it's ostatagia that are more of the issue for R2s. Yes, yes, thank you for raising that. I, I sort of said that without even thinking. Um, <laughs> absolutely. Um, yes, they'll have some cuperia in them, but by that stage, cuperia tend not to be knocking them around very much and, and they've got a reasonable immunity to them. Ostatagia, on the other hand, um, as the autumn progresses, um, will tend to do what's called become inhibited. Um, They burrow into the wall of the fourth stomach and sort of sit there as a half-developed larvae, uh, which can then cause clinical problems later as they start to develop. Um, So, yeah, making sure that those guys get cleaned out before the winter is really important. And in general, the mectin drenches are very effective at that. Mm-hmm. Um, Dave Lethwick and his team at Ag Research have identified a number of farms around the country where the mectins are starting to not work against Ostatagia. 
Um, so yeah, that's for, for those intensive beef farms. Um, you know, doing some monitoring in the calves and making get, getting some idea of how your drenches mm-hmm. are, are performing. Um, you know, could be important for those R2 cattle. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, and you're talking there about the, you know the potential for damage to the stomach lining. So that obviously has an immediate impact in reducing feed conversion efficiency. Is that something that can cause a permanent damage to the stomach? So you actually see lifelong effects if they get a bad. Um, bad case of, of ostatagia at that period of their life? Yeah, I mean, back in the bad old days when we didn't have drenches that were super effective against ostatagia, I'm talking like back in the 70s and things, mm-hmm. um, I I have read papers of, you know, dairy cows getting severely parasitised with ostatagia that never really recover, and my first boss told me stories about that, about animals down on the sand country and the Manawatu like that. Um, but I think generally with the drenches we've got now, um, They'd have to be pretty neglected to get to that point. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, one interesting point that I did pick up, we you know we tend to talk about drench type and and the risks of long actings and things for resistance, but um, you specifically mentioned that injectable um, mectins are are they the most effective or the best choice for dealing with ostatagia in this case? That's what ag research have shown, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, those bigger cattle, um, a lot of people will choose injection for convenience sake anyway. Yep. Um, but if when you're targeting ostatagia at the beginning of the winter, um, don't feel that you have to wrestle with them and give them an oral drench um, because actually the met, uh, the injectable um, is, is better at, at killing all those ostatagia that are there anyway. Okay. So, and why is that? You talk about the superior levels of drug at the target sites. It's just once it gets in the bloodstream, it's better at getting to that stomach lining or what we're talking I, about? I guess that's probably the best way of describing it, yes. Okay. Yeah, no, I just picked up in the, um, you know, we tend to, a lot of the advice generally, without getting, again, too specific talks about avoiding injectables, et cetera, it was interesting that here was a specific bit of advice that they were actually doing a, a better job and with a better choice. So Yeah, and we need to be clear that, you know, those bigger cattle, um, mm. you're very much treating the animals um, and the, the contaminating power um, isn't near that of a calf. So yeah. um, any kind of resistant uh, ones that you might leave behind in a big cattle beast. Well, um, you know, we've already said that um, adult cattle tend not to have high egg counts anyway. Um, so we're hoping with those R2s that their contribution to pasture contamination with resistant worms would be quite low. Um, so it's very much about looking after those animals. And in terms of sustainability, um, it's looking at your system as a whole and looking mm-hmm. at how you manage parasites in the calves. Okay, so I want to move on. Well, actually, it's probably the same topic and just slowly move across into the pregnant heifers and cows. Um, Lighter or younger pregnant cows, pregnant heifers, ostetagia is a significant issue for them as well? It can be, and um, particularly after droughts, and it's Mm -hmm. a way that sometimes things can come unhinged with cows if it's not managed at the beginning of the winter you know we know that the function of a beef cow is to lose some weight over winter um you know waiting for that spring surplus for her to gobble up um but very light cows after a drought um yes you can run them down to quite low body condition scores but they are way more prone um when they're in that state to things like ostatagia so it's just having a clear plan around that if if you're intentionally running light cows through mm-hmm. the winter and look you may well be this year and can be forgiven for it but just don't get tripped up with ostatagia or with liver fluke with them and that's an yeah. easy fix yeah so same same recommendation there the injectable mectins are probably the the best bet yeah 
Yeah. And is it uh, is it just because they're a low body condition score, a bit lower thrift, you know, at least feed intake, et cetera, that they're, they're prone? Or is it something about the Ostertagia itself after drought was more on the grass or higher ingestion? Or is it just the animal's ability to, to, to deal with the, the challenge? In I'm going to say it's the animal, but there's a lot about parasitism and beef systems that we don't <laughs> really know. So I'm, I'm actually guessing. <laughs> That's all right. No, I just... Um, I. It's interesting to know that ultimately the why doesn't really matter. It's the what you've got to deal with. That's what we want to talk about. But it was interesting to know why it um, why it happens after a drought. But um, no one's ever asked me that before. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> what do I say? <laughs> oh, good. Let's see. That's why they why I earn the money to do these things. You see, I've got to try and pull up the question and then stump you. But no, I was just intrigued to know. I mean, ultimately it doesn't matter. Ostertagia after drought's a problem. It's just um, intrigued to know the why. But anyway. You did mention something, you mentioned it several times as we've gone through, but I've actually kept it till now because it seemed to be probably a more significant issue. But um, liver fluke, um, you mentioned it's all the way through a challenge for, for, for the cattle dryer and calf, but particularly for in-calf heifers and cows. Um, is that just the liver damage puts it, they're under stress as well with pregnancy? Yeah, um, and, and as I said last week, you know, fluke's very much a region-by-region region and farm-by-farm yeah. thing, so this is not a national piece of advice. But um, pregnant cattle, particularly, you know, by the time they get to that last month of pregnancy, they need their whole liver to be functioning at 100% because, um, you know, they are just a absolute calf-growing machine at that stage and the liver's got to be, yeah, cranking. Mm -hmm. um, so if there's a heap of fluke in that liver thickening the bile ducts and stopping the function of the liver from doing what it's supposed to do um you know you can get mortalities and and very ill thrifty cows from that so again you know if if it's an issue on your farm it's an easy fix and the fluke snails stop their activity once the ambient temperature down there gets between about 10 and 12 degrees i think from memory uh -huh. um so you know giving some sort of fluke treatment once you get to that point um you know then you know you've cleaned them out for the winter and and all that winter feed that you're putting in to them will uh, be of the best value. So is that 12, that's um, sort of 12 degrees grass, you know, grass level, or is that the soil temperature, that, that 12, uh, yeah, just, 10 to 12 that degrees? Gra that, that grass level where, where the snail where the lives. snail lives. Yeah, yeah okay. And, it, and say, it, lives yeah. In, it lives in water, though. Um, but then I have I found fluke snails in water troughs in my district, um, and we were taught at university that it only lives in, like, flowing streams. <laughs> So, yeah, there's another rule breaker for you. <laughs> yeah, well, that's interesting. But the good thing is, yeah, they, they slow down or stop. So a, um, a clean-up at that time of year and the animal will get through most of the winter, most of the pregnancy with little or no reinfection. Yeah, it's nice that some things are simple, eh? <laughs> <laughs> it is. But And you obviously don't do a, a faecal egg count for liver fluke, but it is um, re relatively straightforward or easy enough to, to test and diagnose? Um, you can do... <sighs> fecal floats for fluke where you okay. look for the fluke eggs but you know that's a send it to the lab type job yep. probably your local vet practice doesn't do that and um fluke are a little bit like tapeworm like they're not always laying eggs so just because you don't get fluke eggs doesn't mean that there aren't fluke there um mm -hmm. so if we're looking at um assessing a herd for risk of fluke um asking specifically when you kill your cow cows um for a fluke check to be done mm -hmm. by the meat inspectors and at the same time um getting your liver coppers tested is really great investment um 
and there's also a blood test available for fluke as well so that measures the cows um trying to make antibodies to the fluke um but they hang around for a bit so uh -huh. um if you treated your herd for fluke and then did a blood test a month later they'd still show positive for fluke okay and is it i mean is that blood test reasonably practical easy to do oh yeah i mean and you do it um at scanning i i suppose yeah. or yeah you know yeah, I don't. I must admit, I almost never use it. I prefer um, checking the livers, but um, it is available. Yeah, and uh, guidelines, issues around treating liver fluke. That um, any of the concerns like we've just talked about with Cuperia and Ostertaga and what products to use, etc. Um, not really. I mean, there's a there's an oral product that for most people, um, you know, they'll throw their hands if you suggest drenching 500 mad <laughs> Angus cows with a, a big yeah. dose of white drench. Um, so there's, you know, my, you're, you're met, you've got mectin injectables that also have clausulon in them, which treat flukes. So yeah, it's a nice, easy fix. Yeah, no, it's easy easy to say on a podcast versus having to do it in the yards, isn't it? Um, <laughs> The other thing you were talking about, it was an interesting turn of phrase, uh, was lack of grass staggers. Um, so <laughs> issues around staggers that come from, yeah, lack of um, grass going down the throat as we head into a winter after a drought. What are you talking about there, Jenny? Well, it's just, um, you know, carving aside, um, we see um, odd random cases of metabolic problems in beef cows well away from calving um, that are, you know, it is magnesium deficiency, mm -hmm. um, but it's only happening because the cows are really quite underfed um, or they've had a big change of diet, like they've been rolling around up on the hills, cleaning up the brown top, and then you bring them down to your nice lush green flats where, you know, the soil temperature is quite low and the plants have stopped taking up magnesium and bang, they get that change of diet and you'll have a whole lot tip over. Mm -hmm. um, but the, yeah, the, the underlying factor with all of those um, kind of out-of-season metabolic things is undernutrition. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, while um, trying to give cows magnesium um, can be practically a bit of a challenge, um, anything's better than nothing. So yeah. any, source, any source of magnesium that you can make available to underfed cows is better than doing nothing. Yeah, and I think that, you know, while we're doing these articles and while we're doing these podcasts is recognising, A, there's the ideal long-term stuff, but at the moment this year we've got some um, challenges that we've got to deal with. And so some of these issues um, may may crop up where people have never seen them before. So it's a matter of being prepared and trying to deal with them as best we can. Yeah, but, just you know, like having them in the back of your mind because, mm. um, yeah, you know, you just don't want to get caught unawares. Yeah, yeah, we'll deal with it. Um, so one of the other things you touched on and you sort of talked through the first couple of stock classes we talked about, not necessarily a common issue or seen as often, but um, trace element issues in pregnant cows over winter can be more significant, more of an issue or, or more likely to be seen. And is that particularly so in a year like this? Um, yeah, you're not going to see trace elements sort of uh, lack of trace elements sort of causing death or at, unless mm -hmm. in extreme circumstances it will thrift. It's just um, that whole reproductive performance in terms of um, calf survival and, and getting back in calf um, can be impacted uh, if their trace element status isn't right. Um, copper by far and away is the big one, um, particularly going through the winter because the copper levels in the pasture drop precipitously in winter mm -hmm. um, and um, 
you know, the cow's demand for copper's going up as that as that calf's getting bigger and there's a lot more um, skeletal growth and organ growth going on in the calf. Um, mm-hmm. So starting winter with good copper levels, I think most people with breeding cows are well aware of that. Yep. Um, yeah, so it shouldn't be an issue. Um, and then things like selenium, um, they are more required sort of in that late pregnancy and through the birth process and, and um, you know, getting rid of the cleanings and that sort of thing. And B12 is, is almost a non-issue in adult cattle. I'm sure I'll hear somebody out there going, oh, I've got to give them B12, but you don't. Um, there is no study in New Zealand that shows a growth response to B12 in young cattle either. Um, I know that, you know, we've got genuine bush sickness areas in the country. Country. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, the idea that B12 stimulates appetite or stimulates growth, um, yes, if you are actually deficient in cobalt, it will help their appetite, but it's not a direct appetite stimulant. I know that's not to do with cows, but just had to say it. Oh, that's fair enough. And so is that just, uh, is that cattle are different from sheep in that case? Because, you know, B12 is a pretty much, um, not universal, but very, very widely used in, in lambs for improved live weight gain. Yeah, it is very widely used um, and it's cheap. So um, if people want to use it, fine. Um, How how much a requirement there is for it in areas where we're not genuinely deficient in cobalt in the soil is probably another question. Uh, pretty sure Trevor Cook might have talked to you about that at some stage. <laughs> I think he did, yeah. No, and then there's another plug for another podcast. One of the very earliest ones we did was was with Trevor. So um, dig that one up if you want to have a listen. Um, and I mean, with all these things, uh, trace elements in particular are always uh, tricky ones to test. But um, that liver check on your, your dry cows when they go to the works is another good opportunity to get some testing done. Oh, absolute no-brainer. And, you know, just do it every year because then you know where you're at. Um uh-huh. Yeah, because things can change and people are sometimes surprised, you know, when I encourage them after some years of not doing it, um, you know, we can sometimes get some surprising results and then we go back and realise that, oh, actually our copper supplementation's changed as well and we sort of hadn't realised that it had drifted or whatever. Um, So, yeah, it's just a really good routine and, you know, specifically asking for those disease checks on that liver too, you know, in our area that would be facial eczema and fluke that we'd ask to have checked. Yep. And just one wee thing, and and um, just struck me as well. Copper declining in grass over winter is that just because the grass is is less active, or what's the? It's, uh, or it's uh, or do, have I put you on the spot again? You have. I just know that it declines in the pasture yeah. over winter, and it, it might be a temperature thing. It probably is. Yeah. Oh, it makes <laughs> yeah. makes perfect so, sense. I can understand. Yeah, and when you when, when you're looking at copper not in the animal, uh, the time to do that is to actually get a pasture test in spring because that's when it will be at the lowest in the pasture, when it's run down low over the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, and the soil, yeah, the soil test is less reliable than the pasture test, but again, I can't remember why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, so no, there's a number of things we recommend, um, yeah, plant herbage testing in spring because if you're going to find a deficiency, that's when you'll find it when they first come out of winter. So Yeah. Hello, it's all interesting stuff. Right, and the other one, which um, is possibly a longer-term issue, particularly in a year like this where things are a wee bit tight, but ideal body condition scores for for cows. And um, you've mentioned, um, in fact, you can probably talk a wee bit more, what's the the target or the ideal minimum? And it's sort of a tipping point, isn't it? You get your cows over and above that that minimum and you, you see quite significant improvements in performance whereas if they fall below that it can make the whole system um, a bit of a struggle year round. 
Yeah, absolutely. So we're talking a one to 10 scale here, which mm -hmm. I tend to use that because then, you know, if you've got dairy heifers or dairy cows or whatever on your property as well, we're just all talking the same language. Um, I know some people with beef cattle will use the one to five scale, but we'll stick with the one to 10 for this one. Um, so yeah, that that holy grail condition score for a cow uh, coming into calving is uh, for her to still be condition score five. Um, but I do acknowledge that in a lot of our hill country beef systems, um, you know, they may have run down below that um, by calving. But if, if that's an annual issue um, that, you know, maybe points to a, a calving date issue or a system issue stocking rate or something like that, um, because it, it's very similar to sheep. There's plenty of data and, and experience out there to say that if we can calve our cows and around about that condition score five, we're going to get the best in terms of uh, rebreeding and in terms of calf survival and, and performance and early lactation and calf growth and all that good stuff. So, you know, whether she gets to calving and body condition score five, that probably started for us this year anyway, back in January uh -huh. <laughs> uh, when it got yeah. dry. Um, so a lot of the herds I'm scanning at the moment, um, you know, there'll be a chunk of cows that are, are more than five, um, you know, in, in some ways the fatter that they can be at weaning the better because then they're more flexible over the over the winter. Um, but, yeah, if, you know, if they're five at weaning um, and run down to sort of four, four to four and a half over the winter and then if you've got your calving date right, they can be putting on a bit of weight as that grass grows under them before they calve, well, that's fine. Um, but it's those cows at the moment in our herds that might be a four and a half or a four and in some cases even lighter than that, that, you know, they're going to cost you in the spring if they've lost further weight. Um, those are the cows that fall off a hill, get stuck in a bog, um, upside down in a creek. Uh, what, you know, why did she do that? Stupid thing. But it's those yeah. skinny cows just do real dumb things <laughs> in yeah. the last few weeks prior to calving. Um, and tend to have more um, calf loss in terms of misadventure as well. Um, so if we can um, identify them and stop them losing further weight, that's great. Um, but it depends on your farm in terms of infrastructure and number of paddocks and um, how many mobs you want as to, you know, how practical that is. Um, I guess then, you know, the, the the least you can do for those cows is try to paddock them out somewhere safer if, if they have gotten very skinny. Um, yeah, but there's there's definitely opportunity in our cow mobs right now to split them on condition score and manage them differently because those fatter cows don't um, need you know the same love that the other ones do. <clears throat> yeah, and we talked about it. Or I've talked about a few podcasts um, with sheep. You have to put your hand on them, but the beauty of the beef cow is it's um, pretty simple, straightforward to do just visually. Yeah, well, I mean, if you, <laughs> there's probably a different schools of thought on that. I mean, the proper, um, you know, dairy body condition scoring, they say you should put your hands on them. But um, yeah, I've got a little guideline in the article there in terms of what a condition score five cow looks like. And she's just that nice, round, smooth cow um, that hasn't got lumps of fat anywhere, but, um, you know, she hasn't got angular hips or pins as around about that five, um, yeah. just to keep it easy. Yeah. So um, whenever they go in at the start of winter, you know, is that opportunity to take some condition score, whether it's, you know, making sure she's no less than that five, ideally, come carving. But one of the things you do touch on your article is then do that, but for sort of three weeks pre-carving and then through carving, feed her as well as you can. So um, 
classic question that tends to get asked, you know, that feeding, that three weeks, feeding her very well before calving, even if she's a, you know, only average body condition score is not going to lead to calving type issues? Absolutely not. Um, the calf at that stage in its gestation is going to grow as fast as its genetics allow it to, um, and it will parasitise that cow. So um, a, a thin cow that's being underfed, that calf will continue to grow at exactly the same rate, and mum will just lose more weight and be weaker and more inclined to do stupid things. Um, the, the only time where... Um, Overfeeding, I hate that word. Overfeeding yeah. cows um, in the in the weeks up to calving would be if your cows are already very fat. You don't want a whole lot of fat in the birth canal. But commercial hill country cows, you know, that just doesn't happen. Um, and they get much much better calf survival outcomes, lactation and um, rebreeding if the if their feed levels are lifting um, in that sort of month to three weeks coming into calving. So general rule of thumb, you know, if, if they're not decking it much beyond sort of uh, 14, 1500, then they're being pretty well fed. Um, and I do acknowledge that on our hill country um, in the spring, um, when you've got cows spread out, um, you know, with ewes that are lambing, um, often the grass won't be that long, but then it comes down to a stocking rate thing, keeping mm -hmm. the stocking rate light so that they've got choice and space and, and they can browse. Yeah, awesome. Okay, look, um, there's some links uh, we'll link to Ginny's article, and in that there's some links to some resources around uh, beef cow body condition scoring on the Beef and Land New Zealand Knowledge Hub and, and some other bits and pieces. Um, we'll add some links to the wormwise material, et cetera, which we've referenced as we've gone through. But um, I'd encourage you certainly to go and read the article. It covers a lot of what we've talked about here and a few other things we haven't talked about and all of them in, in much more detail. Um, before we wrap up, though, Ginny, is there anything you wanted to cover or anything we've forgotten? There was a couple of things. Um, one was this year I'm seeing quite a few young cattle being fed um, palm kernel, which um, uh, they, yeah. do they do really well on palm kernel. Um, and, yeah, I'm not going to get into a philosophical conversation about yeah. palm kernel because it's a good, cheap source of energy. Um, but something that the dairy farmers are very aware of with palm kernel that not all our beef uh, farmers might be is that it's very, very high in copper. Um, so if you've been feeding palm kernel for any extended period, be very careful uh, with any pre-winter copper supplementation. So get some advice from your vet if you've been feeding palm kernel before you give any trace elements like that. Okay, what's, um, um, what's the risks? What happens if they get too much copper in the system? Oh, so yeah, copper toxins. Copper toxicity um, will actually kind of blow their liver out and kill them. Okay. Um, and, and that has happened in some dairy herds and I believe maybe in the odd case with beef animals. Um, so just be careful. Oh, okay. So clinical sign is death. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> but they'll, they'll often be very sick beforehand. and Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's it's not, not fun because it's not something you can particularly treat very easily. Yeah. Um, and just the other thing, too, that occurred to me this weekend while I was um, helping one of our other vets get to the bottom of a, a weird case of deaths in some R1 cattle is that, you know, from now on, uh, when cattle are hungry, um, is that they're really good at helping themselves to random stuff that they shouldn't be uh -huh. eating. Um, things like rhododendron, um, acorns, um, if you're shifting cattle, you know, down a cutting, tutu, um, you know, send someone down ahead and get rid of that stuff that's hanging down um, before your cows come down and help themselves because they don't need to eat very much tutu or rhododendron uh, at uh -huh. all um, to keel over 
um, on um, our Totally Vets um, website, we've got a, a good page with photos of all of those common um, poisonous mm -hmm. plants. So I'll send you the link to that too, Aaron. Awesome. I know. Good. You know, it's um, it's always the uh, and the unusual years where um, yeah, unusual things like that rear their head and cause issues, isn't it? So yes. Good to know. All right. Okay. Hey, look. Brilliant. Thanks, Ginny. I think we've covered a, a fair whack. And um, yeah, if you haven't already, go back and listen to the other podcast with Ginny because I've been watching the numbers and it's certainly been very, very popular. So I've no doubt this one will be as well. It's some um, good, timely advice. So Ginny Dodansky, Senior Vet at Totally Vets. Um, thanks again for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks, Aaron. I enjoyed it. <laughs>